Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and coming up on today's episode, we're going to be talking all things music. I'm joined by the ex-Ruben frontman, Jamie Lemon, and in my opinion, not to build him up too much, is probably one of the best songwriters of the last 15 years. If you've ever met me, you know of me, you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you will know my love for the band Ruben. It's such an important, crucial band for me growing up that is the reason now that I have some of the friends I have and the people around me that I have. This band was so, so important when I was at university. I think I went to see them at a small gig, something like the Leicester Charlotte or something, supporting a band like Biffy Clyro or Million Dead, and this band came on stage. I knew nothing about them and they absolutely blew me away. They were just about to release their debut album, Race Cars, Race Car Backwards, which I think after a couple of weeks it came out, I rushed to HMV and bought it and it changed my life. This album is phenomenal. There's not one bad track on there and if you haven't heard this debut album right now, stop this podcast and go and listen. You will not be disappointed. It's an absolute masterpiece of a debut album. And while you're there, do you know what? Go and listen to the follow-up, Very Fast, Very Dangerous. It's an incredible album with some incredible songs on. And do you know what? If you've stopped the podcast and you're listening to two albums, why not listen to the third album while you're at it? In Nothing We Trust. And absolutely, it's so good. It's so raw and so different, but you can hear the band progress. And for me, it's by far one of my favourite bands of all time. So to know that I had the opportunity to go down to Jamie's house and sit in his lounge with some microphones and just ask those questions that I've always wanted to ask and get this interview for you all is a dream come true. Jamie has also released some solo material and his most recent album, Devolver, for me was my favourite album of last year. Again, another album I urge you all after this interview to go and check out. It's on Spotify, but it's also on Big Scary Monsters label. And you can go on to bsmrocks.com and order yourself one on there. They've got the vinyl, they've got t-shirt bundles, but support this label and support this artist because Jamie is phenomenal. Ah, Where do I go from here? So... What I want to say right now is I'm so, so lucky that this interview happened. I'm so, so grateful to Jamie for inviting me down to his house and actually just doing this audio because you've heard many Mark and Me episodes now. Hey, 32 of them. And sometimes the quality is hard because I'm speaking to guests in America. I'm doing Skype. I'm doing telephone interviews. But I was lucky enough to do this face to face. And I think you'll hear a huge difference and improvement of audio on this interview. So I'm really, really excited to share it with you all. So instead of me talking and babbling on, why don't we get straight to the interview? So here it is. Here's me and Jamie Lemon. Enjoy. So Jamie, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thou art Welk. (laughs) First of all, I want to take it right back to when you were a little tiddlywink and you were really young and you were probably in your bedroom. You've gone straight in here, straight to the time travel. Straight in there. No preamble, yeah, okay. Exactly. You were a little tiddlywink, you were at home. What were those albums that you were listening to as a kid that made you want to be in a band? Well, my parents played a lot of Searchers and ABBA in the car, and they had a lot of uh, these sort of uh, tapes that you'd get from a garage for like one pound or whatever, and they'd be all the side of the Sounds of the 60s compilations. We had four like CDs of Sounds of the 60s, but none of them had the Beatles on, because obviously it's difficult to license the Beatles recordings for these things, so I had a very weird sort of view of the 60s music. We had all the 60s hits, but none of the Beatles, which was a bit of a... 
a sort of a censored, not like censored, but you know what I mean? It gave me a lopsided view of 60s music. But that's what I was hearing from my folks. And then later I spent uh, a brilliant summer at my auntie's and uncle's house. And I had one of them little tape decks where it's got a handle on it and one big speaker and all the buttons down the bottom. And my Uncle John had made me a tape which was Revolver on one side and Rubber Soul on the other. And that was all I listened to for an entire summer when I was maybe eight or nine. It was amazing. And, and, to, and to this day, I can't tell you where Rubber Soul starts and Revolver ends or, or the other way around or what tracks are on which because they sort of sound like the same album. And I just had them on this tape all the way through the summer. But I, I suppose, I mean, those are, that's the first two albums that I really fell in love with, even though I wasn't really aware of music as a thing or as a career option. I think it was when I got um, Queen Greatest It's One that I thought, that's what I want to do. I, yeah, I liked, you know, I liked my parents' music from the 60s. And to be fair, I'm not really sure Queen, you could really call that my music either. It wasn't, it wasn't my generation. Queen were, Freddie was dead by the time I found Queen. Um, but that was the first time that I was like, right, this is the deal. This is me. That's a bit of me. I w- I've always said that I wanted to be <laughs> a combination of Brian May and Freddie Mercury in one person. And I think I've fallen. Well, here's the thing. I've fallen significantly short of both of those goals. But if you aim for the absolute summit, then when you fall short, you're still pretty high up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, massively. So uh, that's no. I've got no problem being not as good as either Freddie Mercury or Brian May. I'd be happy if I was like 10% of both of them. Really. Absolutely. So there you go. That's... I think yeah. that's a good way of describing it, yeah. Okay, so you've been listening to Queen, you're listening to all those kind of massive anthems at the time, like yeah. stuff like Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff, Just it still, today, sounds like it was only recorded last week. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. And the Beatles, that's quite a good starting ground. They're both, the, the thing about the Beatles and Queen, and I'm not sure you could say the same about many mainstream bands, if you, if you look at these big rock bands, Nirvana... Let's say Nirvana. They made another huge. They made a huge breakthrough. Nirvana. They're writing very great, simple songs with huge melodies, but they're not often very complex. What the Beatles and Queen do was, you'd find, you know, records in the top ten like Bohemian Rhapsody and you know Penny Lane uh, or um, Strawberry Fields is probably a better example of incredibly cons- complex music. You know texturally rich and time signatures up the wazoo all these amazing ideas somehow served up like like your mum hiding vegetables in a in you know a pie or something right <laughs> so they're being fed to the public who just hear a great song but it's incredibly nourishing stuff musically very clever music so yeah for a kid who grew up on you know staple type basically the beatles and queen it's a very good uh, schooling in in terms of uh, how to write music and not just pop music. All kinds of both those bands had a very uh, big leaning on classical music, didn't they? And avant garde and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, amazing groups. So when was it at that point? I mean, what age were you when you had like? Did your parents buy you a guitar, or did you save up after doing like a paper round or something to afford your own? No, I won. String? I won a guitar. My parents are very good in that they only only rarely would they straight out get me the thing you know later on when it became apparent that I was my talents lay in songwriting they did they they bought me a little uh, four track recorder which was incredible in the same way that you would buy your kids like school equipment you know that I think that was important and I couldn't have afforded that on myself but sometimes most of the time they would hang back and they'd sort of say you know if I said I want a guitar or I want an amp they'd either say no you got to work for it 
save up or they'd say look I'll, I'll meet you halfway and my dad he'd say look if you get a job and you get halfway I'll fill in the rest which was I think that was a good way and I earned it you know and I bought my first amplifier all myself and uh, I actually won my first guitar I did I was banging away at my folks for an electric guitar for ages and they were like no no and at one point, my dad was like, look, if you pass grade eight on piano, then I'll get the electric guitar. I was like, come on, dad. Grade eight, come on. <laughs> Five years Absolutely. And then, and then I just uh, I circumvented the whole thing by winning it. I won a songwriting comp- competition. My school put me in for a songwriting competition. And, um, well, I say I won. I came second in my age group. And because it was the youngest age group, I don't know what they... Maybe they thought we were going to blow all the money on sweets. The other age groups, the older age groups, they got straight up here's a grand prize money, which right, I could have done with. But my age group, they gave the prize money to the school in terms of musical equipment. I think the idea was they sort of guessed that the, maybe the music teacher had written the songs for these younger kids. Yeah. And the music teachers were all there, obviously. So I won this thing when I came second and my school got 800 quids worth of uh, musical vouchers for Yamaha stuff, which I thought was a bit of a swizz. Uh, but they used it to buy me. Well, they bought the school a lot of keyboards and whatnot, which is great, but they bought me my first white Yamaha electric guitar, and then they gave it to me in assembly on my birthday, and it was rad, and oh my God, of all the things, because Yamaha, no one, I mean, I like I play Yamaha, yeah, but no one thinks of Yamaha as guitars, do they? They more like to think about, obviously, keyboards, pianos, and motorbikes. Yeah, it's usually but, the, uh, the little keyboard with the demo button that you want to push when you're a kid. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact that that guitar they got me, that Yamaha happened to do, was such a good guitar, and I you know, still play it now, that was, uh, that was great. So that was, uh, yeah, I got my first guitar, basically through a competition through my school. It was brilliant. I want to know then, so if you came second and got a six-string Yamaha guitar, which is worth a few hundred quid, yeah. what was first prize? A drum kit or a... No, I mean, first prize would have been, they would. I think they got a £1,000 worth of vouchers. The, the people that got, there were ten there were ten little girls and they all had a song and they all played a guitar and they all did a sort of sidestep, sidestep rhythm to sing this song together. And I wasn't very taken with it. Obviously, I was bitter that I won. <laughs> But uh, I wonder how they're getting on. I mean, that's a that's a long way. That's not a lot between ten girls. Not a lot between at all. ten people at a thousand pounds, only hundred quid each. Couldn't even get a Yamaha guitar with that. So I probably I probably lucked out. Actually, I yeah. should stop feeling a bitter. Maybe I let that go after all these years. <laughs> just just about now. It was twenty five years ago, quarter of a century. What? It's about the right time to say <laughs> yeah, goodbye. Okay, all right. Cool. So at that point, when was it you actually found some mates that also had the same kind of vision of you of let's try and make a band? It's tough. It's tough a long for a long, long time. It's just me on my own. I I didn't really have many mates at school because I was weird, and I'd have like one mate at a time. And I did have a mate. Well, first of all, like before I even got my first guitar, there was my friend Chris Hawes, who was this amazing. You know that like the three billy goats gruff, that story about the three billy goats gruff, and they got to go across the bridge, yep, and the other yep. won't let them. He was like that, but with his two older brothers. It was Chris, who was ten, who was about my age, and then there was his brother Pete who was maybe 14, and then there were brother, I think it was Dave, who was like 18, and they were like various ages of a rocker, and they all had a little electric guitar, these three boys, all different colours of electric guitars, and you go around their house and they just talk about rock and whatever, and I got a lot of my rock education that way. So he he was my first buddy that I was in a band with called Sheer Power, and it was just him on guitar and me on just vocals because I didn't have a guitar. And when he did two songs, we did Bohemian Rhapsody, and we did... Uh, 
everything about you, my ugly kid Joe, and that was it. And then later on, I, I had a mate called, what was his name? I liked him a lot. Chris Trussler, I think his name was. And he played clarinet, and I had an electric guitar. And I was like, that's a good enough lineup for a band. So we were in a band, and the lineup was electric guitar and clarinet. Wow. Called AstroTurf. That was pretty wild. And I was writing a lot of songs by this point, and he'd think of clarinet parts. You couldn't really call it a band. We didn't really play anywhere. We just played by ourselves, which was fun. It was only a lot, a lot later when I got to secondary school that I actually found some people to be in a band with. And even then, I... uh, No, yeah, I'd started... You know, I had a few more mates then. I got less weird or more weird, depending on how you look at it. But yeah, I, I found a couple of buddies who had electric guitars and they introduced me to all... You know, I'd never heard Green Day or Nirvana when I when I got to secondary school. And by then, you know, it was already a bit late. And so secondary school was a real great place to find people. It's tough to find a drummer at secondary school when your kids know what... Well, I, I can't go out the door without tripping out some drummers these days. Drummers all over the place. Yeah. You know, I've got two drum kits myself. But uh, back in the day, you couldn't get a kit. So no, and no one wanted you to learn drums because it was too noisy. So drummers were sacred. They were thin on the ground. Everybody played guitar. couple of people... Who played bass? <laughs> they were uh, usually guitarists that couldn't be asked to play the guitar, yeah, or they knew yeah, their mates were better. Guitarists, yeah, uh, and no drummers. So it took us a long time before we found the drummer. Uh, but yeah, nowadays I've got drummers on tap, yo. It's the thing is, it's like a parent's worst nightmare. Like, what do you want for Christmas, son? A drum kit. Oh my god! No, gosh. what do you want for Christmas? Yeah. Yes, a drum kit. Yeah, we don't celebrate Christmas anymore. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Gone. Shame. So when was it you met John then and started to kind of form Angel? Was that? <laughs> You've done your research. John, uh, I was going to guitar lessons with a guy in Lightwater. It's just unnecessary detail that you don't need. Although, do you know what? He taught me a lot. A guy called Julian Head. And uh, I was learning guitar and I said to him, he was very uh, keen on my, he, he thought my songwriting was my talent, which let's face it, if I've got one, it is. It's not certainly not singing or playing guitar. And uh, he was quite keen to encourage the more acoustic-y, soft side of things but I kept going no I want to be in a punk band you know and he's like well look if you want to be in a punk band there's this kid that I teach called John who uh, plays bass in fact he said look there's two he said I've got a kid called James who plays bass and another kid called John who plays bass if you want me to put you in touch with them and I thought well I'm already called Jamie that'd be confusing so uh, and it's good because they both went to my school I didn't get on with James at all so it's good that I didn't get James in the band so I called up John and he had a bass guitar and we just played to a drum machine for a while. I'd already met another kid outside of these guitar lessons called Richard who was playing guitar with us. And uh, But yeah, I met John through our guitar teacher. And then we met a lad at school because we all went to the same school. And then we met a lad called Paul who was in the sixth form. We were like year seven and he was in the sixth form. He was a lot older. He was the only drummer in the school. Apart from Mark Lawton who later joined Angel but he didn't like us. He wasn't our mate. He was much closer in age to us, but we, because he made it clear how he felt about us, we had to get uh, Paul Brady, who was great. So yeah, we had a sort of a motley band. That's what I thought I liked about it, is that everyone else, they, they'd make, and sorry if this is going off a point, but I've often thought about this, about being in a band, and sometimes I wish it had been the other way around. I envy bands that are, they're just your mates, and then everyone goes, let's be in a band, and then everyone picks up an instrument, and that's great. I think those bands have more fun. I'm not sure if they go on to have such lustrous, illustrious careers or make such worthwhile music. But for the time that band exists, if it really is just your mates, 
that's so great to have. And I never had that because I was always more interested, quite apart from the fact that not many of my mates played instruments. I was always interested in forming the best band. The band was always the focus. It wasn't friendships first and what should we do to hang out? Oh, let we might as well play some music. It was like, I want to be in a band. Who's the best? And so that meant at our school, you know, school bands, it's a big culture for the more musically minded kids. Usually a few school bands. Mostly they were kids that were in little gangs anyway. They were already mates and they play a few songs and whatnot and they had such fun. They weren't great to listen to, but they had a great time. Whereas mine was always, and they're always in your, your peer group. And at school, I don't know if you remember at school, in British schools, I don't know how it is elsewhere, it's almost like a class system. It's difficult to hang out with kids that aren't in your year. Yeah. We even got in trouble when I was at school for hanging out with kids in year 10 and your year 9 don't hang out. It was difficult. It was like, you know, marrying outside your religion. It to, is, massively. To hang out with other kids. And in my little band that I put together in that school, every single member of the band was in a different year at school. So we didn't really hang out. And it made a weird... Whereas everyone else, you know one band were a gaggle of mates and they looked the part and they all dressed the same and they hung out at the same time that that made sense we were this weird little you know I was like 12 the drummer was 18 you know people that wouldn't usually hang out together and so but I mean we weren't mates first we became mates later and uh, I sometimes envy those people that were mates first I think maybe they have a, a maybe not a richer experience but a different experience yeah sometimes I feel like Maybe if we'd, we'd have had that bed, bedrock of friendship first, it would have made things easier. Or maybe it would have made things harder. Who knows? The thing is, it'd be frowned upon now if the 18-year-old is hanging around with the 12-year-old and the 15-year-old. It just it, it needs to be... Like you said, I think the only time we ever mixed with the other years was when it was like a football tournament yeah. and you'd be allowed to then... Then the, the kind of barrier dropped and you could say hello and nod. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. It's weird, isn't it? But, you know, these days, the difference of six years between people, certainly our age... It's nothing. You know, if you were going out, maybe you were going out with a girl from, you in year nine, you are going out with a girl from year 11. That was front page news. It was. Difference of two years. Yeah. Imagine that. You know, my wife is younger than me by two years at least. You know, that would have been scandalous. It was. Would, that would have been like a year 11 going out with a year eight. What? Insane. <laughs> insane, insane. So yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, we were a motley little band. So you then, obviously, um, you replaced drummers and got Guy in after the release of Pilot, ready for race cars, race car backwards. Yeah, yeah. Now, Guy added this whole new dimension. Um, his drumming ability is insane. Uh, I think you kind of were his little tutor in a way and got the best out of him. I saw him progress over every record that he did. Maybe. That first album, Race Cars, Race Car Backwards, Jason Wilcox nailed the production at the time, I think. It sounded like the same band that I would then see when I went to the gig. And right. I think that's a compliment to most bands. Sure. I mean, we were very happy with actually how that record came out. It was very difficult to make, and we weren't um, particularly involved in the mixing process. We just sort of got it and heard it and went, oh, okay, great. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've heard some people say the production on that record is a bit scrappy. I know, um, well, I won't name names, but some producers I work with now go, oh, it's great because it sounded a bit live and a bit scrappy. And I'm like, what? I thought it sounded like a million bucks. I actually thought it was quite produced, as in quite glossy, the way it sounded. But if other people think it sounds lively and scrappy, then that's fair enough. I mean, it, I'm not sure it has much character, the production, but maybe that's not for me to say. Maybe I'm just too used to it. Yeah, yeah, he did a good job. 
Did you go and initially record it as a group of demos for a label and then it turned into an album or did you go to this chicken shed, record and make it the album it was meant to be? We, we rec- first, first we recorded every song we had, which is about 50 maybe, at the same studios with slightly different kit. Um, and those were the album demos just for us to choose because we didn't have a label on board at that point. We thought, look, we're just going to make the record ourselves. And actually, I might even prefer those demos to the final record. I think they had a little bit more vitality to them and a little bit devil may care. I think we started, your first album, you want it to be great. It started to over overpaint someone. I think it was John, actually. Well, it's not a, a very original metaphor, but he would he would say about mixing, he would say, look, it's like if you're doing a painting, you just keep on painting and you paint over and over and you've got to know when to stop. And someone else said, you know, art is never finished, it's only abandoned, which I quite like. I heard that on the telly the other day. And so maybe that the actual album had a little bit too too much thought put into it. The, the demos we did, some of which um, were released on the 10th anniversary edition yeah. of that first record, I thought they were better. We did them in about two days. And because we were that good, we could just bosh it out. And I think they've got a vitality. I think if I'd had the lyrics ready, then we should have just released those instead of buggering about for months on the actual final record. It took a long time and maybe slightly overthought. I see. I don't. When I listen to it, I just think, like I said, it was the band I heard when I got home from the gig, and that's that's amazing. I hate going to see a band, and then you get home, and there's extra synths and all these different things going on, and you're like, that doesn't sound like the band I just went to see. They're Interesting. Just completely different. With, but I mean, I, I come up against this a lot because obviously these days I tour as a two piece. And people are always asking about well, the difference between the record and how can you represent what's on the record and there's more stuff on the record. And and what I always say is that, I mean, I like where you're going with that, that you're saying, well, it doesn't sound like the band I saw live. But on the other hand, I quite like the fact that live and record is different. You know, they're different animals. They're produced in different circumstances. And unless you genuinely do just put a mic in a room and record a band, play their set, start to finish, which I'm very excited by the concept of. Yeah. Um, I think they should be separate. And even... Even though um, the gap between what I'm doing now on record and live wasn't quite as big as it was back when we did that first record, there was still a big gap. I mean, there were still at least two guitar tracks on every even the simplest of those songs. There's a lot of piano on it. There's a lot of strings on that first album and overdubs and little over dubby guitar parts. So I'm glad that the energy uh, came across. But there, there was still I've I've never made a record that I've been able to produce exactly live because there's yeah. always extra stuff in the studio yeah so then like most bands there's the difficult second album to kind of you've you've laid your foundation i thought it was the third one that's supposed to be difficult is the second one it's difficult it's meant to be the second one is it saying. okay yeah but there's a lot of bands out there that nail it mm. you know like for me like biffy Clyro nailed it they released their second album vertigo bliss and i was like wow this is evolving and this is what i'm liking it's very good very fast very dangerous is Chris Sheldon just making it sound like one of the best records you can hear. You know, you listen to it now and it doesn't sound like it was recorded, what, 15 years ago or something crazy like that, 10 years ago? Don't do it to me. 15 years ago, can't be. It can't be that many. Probably about 9 or 10, but it's a it's while close, ago. It's close, it's close. It's like yeah. more like 12 or 13. But it's still a long time and it doesn't sound like it was recorded, you know, that long ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be candid with you, and I'm sure Chris won't mind, he's got a thick skin, uh, I'm not very happy with the production on that record, it wasn't really what I was after, I wanted something liver and looser, and again what we came up with something that was quite 
it's quite glossy, I think. It's well polished, the sounds. Sure, yeah. The drums sound big. Uh, I was never happy with the bass sounds. That was one a bugbear of ours that we, we found it very difficult to get a good bass sound. But, but I mean, we didn't really have that. Our gear wasn't very good. Um, yeah, I, the second that was, second one was a bit ruined for me. I have a tough time with it because we were very excited about it at the time. But it got a, a big backlash from uh, not only the press, but also people that were close to us. So we played it to our friends. They were like, oh, it's not as good as the first one. We are like, oh, thanks very much. Cheers. And, and also because because a lot of the songs were simpler, well, in structure, in terms of structure, like, you know, keep it to yourself or kick in the mouth. They're more like little grunge songs, aren't they? Whereas I think people were used to stuff like Fall of the Bastille or, or No One Wins the War on the first one. Uh, people sort of thought, and, and again, because people thought we made it quickly, this is the trouble because we made race car in what was it 2003 but it took so long to mix and come out and find a deal that it only it came out a year later so then when race car comes out very fast they've all got cars in them (laughs) when when very fast comes out maybe only eight months later people sort of assumed oh well they you know they they made it in a hurry they only took them only took them you know eight months to write it's only been the the first one was only a couple of weeks ago and because when the songs were simpler they thought well that's because they didn't have so much time to write it but actually we'd been writing it for you know two years almost yeah all because race car had been finished so long before and and actually writing a simple song for for people that are used to writing stuff windy weird stuff like fall of the Bastille or missing fingers or whatever is tougher and so i think people a lot of people thought they've just boshed some in quick and easy out which really depressed us and Certainly, the online press that had championed, championed us when Race Car came out, like Drowned in Sound, they really went for us. And they were like, This is a rubbish album. They've just bossed it out. There's no care in it. And you're like, Oh, for fuck's sake. And they all, the trouble is with the press a lot of the time and with bad press, there's, there's good journalists and bad journalists. And I always said this they've already got all the reviews written. They just changed the date and the names. You know, there's a, there's a well-worn narrative for musicians. There's Up and Coming. There's Difficult so Second Album. There's Return to Form, which is what happened to us. You know, that I knew on that third album what all the reviews would say. I could have written them for you. And, and so the indie press, they decided, oh, we'd got, now we got on a big label. We hadn't. And now we got a big name producer, sort of, you know. Now with the big boys, we, you know, we'd sold out. And now we, they're doing these pop singles, which you'd always done. They decided that it was time to chop us down. So they withdrew their support, which we'd relied upon. That was quite hurtful. And it was when, that was when I realised, like, oh, right, you know, it's a, it's a game, isn't it? it? It's not about appraising our work or our career it's about fitting us into a narrative that you already have for a lot of these um, outlets that was depressing to see that side of it so i can't really listen to that record without that twinge of uh, you know it was i think it was a disappointment to a lot of people certainly to people close to us the bummer i worked really hard on it I love it, so that's... Oh, I love you! There you go! Do you know what I mean? Good! You did it for me, I love it, so that's all that matters. Yeah. What was it like then when you actually got Chris Sheldon on board? Because the cone, the shape and stuff like that are some of the best sounding albums. You must have been like, this is awesome. It was great. I mean, he was a fantastic guy to make a record with. Um, And he'd... Obviously, he'd worked with 
Biffy and Ocean Size, which is why we were excited about using it. The colour of the shape didn't really match so much to us, although we loved it. Um, we were more interested in his skills as a producer rather than just a mixer. I think yeah. he's just a he mixed colour and the shape. He's a great mixer. Uh, but, you know, we wanted someone that we could spend, you know, a month with and really work it out. He's a fantastic guy and we had a whale of a time. We did have some problems, actually. We had some problems with um, tuning. We couldn't get our guitars in tune and we lost quite a lot of time working on tracks that just came out all wrong. We actually recorded that song Blitzkrieg. It was supposed to go on the second record. But we had to abandon it because... Um, we just ran out of time because all the guitars went out of tune. And I probably had trouble singing. In every record I've made has been quite stressful, really. But we had we had a lot of fun with Chris. Yeah. Although, I mean, he would really go to town on the old reverb. And he would call us and he would say, here's my mix. And we'd listen to it and it'd be so poppy and reverb all over the shop. And he'd go, what do you think? And John and Guy... And I don't care about saying this because we can have it out later if you want, John and Guy. You can call me up. They'd be like, oh, sounds great, Chris. Sounds fantastic. Lovely. Love what you've done. And Chris would go, Jamie? And I'd be like, this is awful. <laughs> Scrape all that reverb off. Turn them drums up for crying out loud. Put that solo back in. And I'd, I'd really battle with Chris. Not battle because he was very, he'd go, oh, okay, no problem. You know, he was yeah. very, he was very, um, I don't want to say acquiescent. He just wanted to make us happy. You know, yeah. he worked for us. And he didn't have any lofty ideas of, oh, this is my record and you're just the instruments I used to make it. You know, it was our record. And so whatever I said went, that was great. So he'd go, okay. And, and I, he'd try and make a bit more rocking for me. And then we'd go back out to the telly room to watch telly while he fixed the mix. And then as soon as we get out, John and Guy would be like, oh, it sounded awful, didn't it? I was like, yeah, thanks for backing me up. <laughs> yes, it did sound awful. You know, and this would happen every time. So I'd have to be the... The obstinate one, which is a role that, yeah, maybe I feel particularly well. It would always be me that was the sledgehammer and go, no, do it again. Because I knew that he could get what we wanted. And he wanted to. You know, he wasn't at all combative or obstructive about these notes that I would give him. He'd go, no problem, that's great, I could do that. And uh, I love him a lot. He did get it. We did approach the last two days of our studio time. And we were only about half the tracks through the mixing and he was like oh great thing we do some great work and then next week we'll come and mix the rest and I was like Chris we've got two more days to mix the whole record and he's like oh shit <laughs> he mixed the last six <laughs> in like two days because he I think he thought we had an extra week so he was really taking his time but good I'm glad you think it sounds good I, I had fun maybe it needs a, a reassessment by myself I'll have a little listen yeah yeah <laughs> well I got they put it out on vinyl didn't they I might Put the vinyl out. It's in there. I know you can only see yeah. the board noggin, but yeah. I like how you placed that, your latest one there. Ready? Was cause, it's only, not because it's the best, just because it's the last one yeah, I've got, the latest one sense. I've got, yeah. It's when you've got it, it was like everywhere around the room is placemats and everything. Oh, just no. stuff. Yeah, I've there. got it upstairs. I've got all the posters upstairs, yeah. So what was it like then when you went completely on your own and did Hideous Records and released your third record and you had a lot more control over the creativity and everything? I'm sure you and... Is it Sean, the producer? Sean re- produced Nothing We Trust, yeah. yeah. I've got his surname. G- Gnocchi. Gnocchi, there Gnocchi Biscuit. That's what we call him, the Gnocchi Biscuit. Watching the studio diaries, it just looked like you two hit it off from the moment you first kind of set in the room together. You could just tell that this is going to be a kind of partnership that's going to do well. Yeah, he did. He really, he really did understand us as people, and you can see that we had the same sense of humour, which was a, a relief, a relief. 
Which, yeah, we perhaps not shared quite so exactly with um, Chris and Jason. Jason we knew from school, so we had a long history. He'd actually been the drummer in Angel before Mark joined. So he knew what we were about musically. Uh, we, To be fair, we all had a slightly frictious relationship with Jason when we were at school. Um, and Chris, like I said, we got on famously, but we weren't really on the same wavelength uh, humour. We had a lot of fun, but, um, you know, Sean, it was like he was in the band almost. Chris has got the age different he would not be in your you know year at school that that's the big difference you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean see, I think that's it yeah I think Sean would have maybe just been one of the sixth form prefects smoking in the corners and telling us not to go in the wrong toilets yeah he could have, he could have been there uh yeah and he seemed to get the sound as well we first heard um some b-sides that Janoki had done for Ingerica who were brilliant and we preferred the b-sides to their album their album they did with Dave Eringer and Janoki was the engineer on it but it was too polished and then when they went back to do just some b-sides with sean they were perfect and i was like wow this is great so we called him up and got him to do some demos and then eventually did the album with him yeah the the trouble with those studio diaries you mentioned and you're you are right that you can see from those how how well we got on and how it gelled and i think you can hear that in the record as well but the trouble with the studio diaries is and I watched them again recently. With I went round to Mark's house, Mark the old drummer, and we had a look at them because his wife hadn't seen them, so we had a look through and it was lots of fun. But those studio diaries are about one minute long, and that's thirty days of eighteen-hour days, let's say, in the studio, and that one minute of the fun. That's all the fun there was. <laughs> all, all the good times went into those videos. The rest of it, the, the remaining 17 hours and 59 minutes, was hard fucking work. And there was not often a lot of smiles. We all loved each other and got on and we were all striving towards the same purpose. But it was tough. Making a Nothing We Trust was hard. and But people sort of think it was like a ball party the whole way through a bouncy castle jellyfest. It wasn't. It wasn't just you know the comedy playhouse every day it was hard hard work you teased us all because watching those you're thinking i want to be in the studio with these guys they're having the best days of their life no, messing you, around doing no, star wars don't. noises and- i mean it is fun I, when i watched them the other day with with mark i remembered i'm looking at it and everyone's joking about and doing a silly voice but i can remember what happened immediately the cameras turned off and the huge argument we had right then. Or in some cases, the huge argument we just had before someone turned the camera on and we had to, you know, be engaging and because we were sending them out to the fans on YouTube and we wanted to say, look, this is how our album's going. So I can see just around the edges of all those and go, oh, I remember that day. That was when we cut my hand off or whatever, you know. So yeah, we did tease you all. It wasn't intentional. I mean, there's no point in filming the arguments. Well, there is. But if you're doing the filming yourself, when we did the documentary, that you got some arguments filmed there, but that was by other people. No one wants to turn the camera on when you have an argument, unless you're an outside party. Or you're Metallica doing some kind of monster, the documentary where you just want to be Lars and just give a bad name to show what you're really like. That's great, isn't it? But again, they had outside agents to do that for them, where you, yeah. can't, you can't capture it. Yeah. I can't imagine a Ruben counselling session live on the DVD. We had a few, mate. We had a few, and they weren't very productive. So with uh, In Nothing We Trust, it's your favourite Ruben album, isn't it? Yeah. You absolutely love it. Is it the fact that you could actually <laughs> record what you wanted and you felt like the stuff you were putting on record is a true representation of your songwriting? Not, I mean, not 
really, I mean, I just think it's got the best, not only the best songs, some of the best songs, and there's good songs on the other ones, but I think as a whole, it makes... It just makes sense more than the other two. The first one is obviously, first album is always like, lots of songs, you've been playing them for years, they don't really fit, you're not really thinking in terms of album, you're just thinking in terms of what songs have we got. And the second one, I think if we'd have taken that long one off it that everyone likes, what is it called, Return of the Jedi, that would have been a better album because it would have been, you know, half hour of power, a short, sharp shock, and it would have hung together a bit better. I think the third one just hangs together as a concept much better and so uh, I was looking at richer themes musically. I mean, we'd always had complete control over what we put on the record. Is that true? No, the extra mile asked us to put Let's Stop Hanging Out on the first one, which I didn't want to do. And they were talking about us having scared of the police and all that whatnot on it. So uh, to a very small extent, yeah, there was pressures, not pressures, but suggestions from Extra Mile, who were a record company, that's fine. Uh, but as to, yeah, what we might want to put on it. They wanted us to put Blitzkrieg on the second one, and that might have worked, but we, like I say, we ran out of time. So yeah, there were people suggesting what we should put on the records before, and you're right, in Nothing We Trust, it was none of that. So yeah, maybe that is why I like it as well. I listened to it the other day, it was well good, mate. I listened to it on the way here today. Did you? inspiration, and I was... Suffocation for the soul. That oh. outro riff sounds massive. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I had a lot of... Turn it up, Sean. I have. Turn it up more. <laughs> I will. Turn it up more again. I can't. Turn it up more. Okay. All but, that. I'm glad. I'm glad. The dynamics as well. Even stuff like Good Luck, when you brought in Hannah, those vocals and the harmonies and everything is so nice. Mm. And then you've also got stuff like Cities on Fire, which is elements of Pantera. Do you think? scream on that... On that oh. riff at the opening thing. is just okay. It rips my skin off my face. Blimey. Yeah, I think it succeeded. I, I had to listen to it and I thought, hmm. I was listening to um, Crushed Under the Weight and I thought, this is exactly how I would do a song today. Often when I listen to a song by anyone, uh, not, uh, I don't mean just myself, by, by anyone, I will listen to it and go, oh, could I put a trumpet there? Or, you know, or I imagine like a harmony I would have added. And often if I ever go back to listen to my own music from Ruben, which is actually quite rare, um, I sometimes think, oh, should have put harmony in there or should have put a weird noise in there. I listened to um, Crushed Under the Weight and the, and the rest of that album and I wouldn't change a thing, which is unique for me in, in my catalogue. I just thought, how about... And sometimes I thought, oh, it'd be good if this bit comes over the... Oh, yeah, we did that, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with it. I'm really happy with it. And I suppose mm. that was the one album when I did see you play, it wasn't you know, um, transcribed to the live set perfectly. Like Agony, Agatha, you didn't have the piano, obviously, going on as the main din-din-din-din-din. Mm, I tried to learn the piano, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't good enough, so we just did it on the guitar. But I quite like that, because then you get the, the guitar version, you know. I like that. It's a bit more punchy. Yeah. So let's talk about the end of Ruben. Yeah. You know, um, I saw you at Download Festival, and you were, you were in one of the tents, and it was full. And the year after, or the two years after, you were on the main stage. Yeah. And, you know, with full respect, I was quite surprised that they gave you that slot because that's a big thing. You know, I was like, bloody hell. Like, as much <laughs> yeah. as I was rooting for you and wanted you to headline the bloody thing, yeah. to see you actually on that stage, I was like, people are now actually going to give them the love and respect that they've earned after all these years of touring and playing. I was like, mm. wow, this is yeah. this is a big deal. Yeah. And then it wasn't that long after that. You were like, right, we're going now. Bye. Yeah. And what was it that triggered it? Was it, are you just not enjoying it anymore or? 
hadn't enjoyed it for years. No. Hadn't enjoyed it for years. I mean, the thing, the thing with that live, you make a point about that main stage thing, and that came about all the like stuff that happened for Ruben that you would associate with like a band making a step up or at last reaching some kind of next level or whatever or some kind of recognition. It was always because there was somebody in the system somewhere that was a big Ruben fan. No one else gave a shit, but Jimmy the Letters Boy, you know, the coffee man, had somehow put our name in the pot, do you know what I mean? Which is fantastic. And and those people, we got to do a lot of good stuff, but it was always some kind of backdoor secret fan, you know, that we and we'd slip through the net. It was never because we actually were a main stage status band. We weren't. It was because someone, they gave us the choice. They said, look, you can either go high up on one of the smaller stages, or if you want, you could go first on the big stage. We were like, big stage, please. And they were like, do you not want to reconsider with that big stage? <laughs> you know, because we thought we'd never get to do it again. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't on that main stage because we were a main stage band. We were there because, you know, somebody personally liked us, so why not throw them a bone? Um, which I can't, I'm not, I'm grateful for. That main stage at Download was one of my best uh, highlights of my career, if you can call it that. But um, it was always the secret fan where we would get the good stuff. And so it would never, it never really represented any kind of movement. And I have to tell you that, you know, one of the triggering the decisions to like call it quits was things like offers for the next year at Download, which were on the smaller stages. And we thought, oh, right, we, we haven't actually progressed anywhere. That, <laughs> that T was, guy's not Yeah, that again. T guy's left. <laughs> yeah. That was just a blip. The, the offers, the show offers and the record offers that were coming through for what we might have done next, the, you know, after sort of the record had come out and a few months afterwards, when we were looking through what our next step might be, we were right back at square one. All the all the progress that we thought we'd made in that last year and a half or so of hideous records and releasing ourselves into nothing we trust and download whatever, it hadn't actually amounted to anything. We we didn't have any money in the coffers. The offers we were getting for shows were sort of the same as we'd just done, if a little bit smaller, you know. It and we would just have had to have started from basically two years ago. And so at that point, you know, we were so exhausted already after having done it for 10 years. And the last two particularly had been incredibly hard because we were doing it ourselves, our own label, everything we did ourselves. For someone then to say, do it all again, do do two years of work again, start from two years ago now, was just like, well, that's impossible. We just can't do it. We just couldn't do it. Faced with that uphill struggle again to get to the top of fucking Ben Nevis and see... Another fucking Ben Nevis you've got to go up. And someone chop your leg off as you get to that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think, well, fuck this. No, I'm just going to do a forward roll all the way home down yeah. the bottom. It, it just, we just didn't have the energy. We were, we were on absolutely empty. And then we're going, off we go again. It's like, well, no. And, you know, nothing was easier. We hadn't, we hadn't made it up that level where we had a bit of relief. Nothing. It would have been started. I can't, I've said it a few times now, but it really was. Like starting from square one again, and we just weren't ready to face it. We didn't have any energy left, so we had to stop. Yeah. There's only so long you can eat Aldi baked beans for, as well. Absolutely, you need Heinz. Yeah, you do. And That's if it means true. if it means breaking the band up so you can get those Heinz with sausages in as well, oh sometimes. Oh my god, with the sausages. That's that's the one. Yeah. 
obviously it's quite a sad case. You 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 decided to call it a day. The first sign I think I saw when I saw you weren't happy, and I'm just being honest, is when I watched the DVD back and you come off stage in Birmingham, I think, and you look genuinely fucked off. You've got a red face, you've got a towel around you, yeah. and you just look like someone that's just had enough. You're just like, fuck this. <laughs> and you left that on the DVD. You know, you, you were very honest on that. I love the serial and everything else, the fun parts. Yeah. And the, but you kept that in as well to show it isn't all like the studio videos. It's This yeah. is how it really is. Well, I think that is... I mean, I know what you're talking about because, again, you know, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that is the closest that that DVD got to showing the ugly side of being in a band. You know, none of us wanted to have a fight on camera and and we uh, we didn't really have that many fights. And that... It, there's some hot words between me and Guy, and I don't mean sexy. <laughs> I mean, no. Angry, you know, I'm really... I mean, that's about as cross as we got as each other. It's still very polite and British. But when I watch it, I wish I hadn't spoken to him like that. Um, but he understands, and he even understood at the time, you can see what he says after I leave the room, he understood at the time the pressures that we were facing and that I was facing. Um, I think... To be fair, that was just a bad gig. I, I don't want to throw you off the scent. That was that was just a bad gig, you know. It, the the cracks had started to show by that point, but it wasn't an all encompassing thing. I still thought the band had a lot of uh, time in it at that point, but um, I think it was just a bad gig. But it was all compounded by all the pressures, wasn't it? And maybe I wouldn't have had such a bad gig if, if I'd have had them Heinz beans. Do you know what I mean? I it's, all, it's all part part of when it when it's your whole life, which it no longer is, which is why. I cope with it so much better. Then every little thing adds up to it. And before you know it, you're screaming at someone you care an awful lot about in a dressing room. Awful. Did you start writing a fourth album or was it after In Nothing We Trust you were like, this is it? You knew that was the kind of closing of the book? What had started to happen was that there was an atmosphere in the band and I felt like there was a, a resistance from Guy and John. And again, like, you know... If you boys want to call me up and chat this out, we've, I think we're all quite at peace with what happened in the band. And I don't think there's anything I could say about or on behalf of Guy and John that they would argue with. And if they did have a problem, I'd hope, you know, that we could talk it out. Pizza Hut is always there. To pizza Hut is always you know there. I, mean? I had Guy around for a pizza the other day. It's fucking brilliant. And uh, we don't tend to talk much about the band. Um, I felt like, and this isn't to say that there was... I can't really say what they were feeling, but I felt like from them there was a resistance to new material. I would, I couldn't get them excited in the same way that I'd been able to before about playing a new song. You know, I would say, let's try this new riff. And they would say, well, we haven't really got time or, you know, we better, you know, sound check instead. I think a lot of the, the time I, we would, I would try and get some work done in sound check. I always thought that was helpful. You, you know, you do your songs, everything sounds good. You might have about 20 minutes to muck around. That became not an, an option. They would say, oh, no, we've got to make sure this drum works. And I'd be like, we've just done that drum, you know. Yeah. And for whatever reasons, and I could be remembering this all wrong, but for whatever reasons, I felt like they, there was a resistance from those two, who, and they were all I had, to writing new material. So even if learning new material so even if it was just me writing it in my bonds on my own i still needed them as a soundboard to see how it would feel and if it worked or not and that process really shut down it was hard enough getting uh, enough songs for nothing we trust really there were a couple we didn't put on it that wound up as b-sides but that was all we really had and by the time we'd finished that 
there were no new songs for the whole you know from when we started re- demoing and then recording and nothing we trust i hardly wrote anything new at all nothing approaching you know a, f- a fourth album there were a couple of bits we were playing around with we we had a go at too scared to fight that i then did with sean a little bit a little bit later but that was basically everything i had it was the the coffers had not the coffers had run dry. That's not the, the coffers were empty. <laughs> the well of one had run dry. Yes. It was just because I wasn't being... Previously, I was in an environment where I was encouraged to, you know, well, we've got some new songs or if I said, listen, this new song, everybody would be like, yeah, and jump on it and we jam it out and it would sound brilliant. That disappeared yeah. for whatever reason. And it may have been a result of an atmosphere that I was creating because I was not fun to be around, uh, especially that last, last couple of years. So I, I wouldn't say I blame guy or john for um how they behaved if indeed they behaved at all and that was just how it seemed to me it could have been that they were perfectly open to it but something was blocking me but i felt like there was an atmosphere that wasn't conducive to new material so that's why it sort of stopped here i didn't write anything do you get sick to death of everyone in the whole world asking if you're ever going to come back and do this reformation and come back on and do is it just a case of that is done you that was a book that will not be reopened because it just seems, even talking to you now, it's kind of, I couldn't see, even if someone offered you a multi-pack of Heinz baked beans with sausages yeah. and the breakfast selection, you know, when we get no, like bits shit, of egg and stuff. I know what you mean, yeah, you get the whole breakfast in the tin. I only get sick of it. I'm happy that people, I'm happy that people like it enough to want to ask and they want more. I get it, I get it. I only get sick of it because I've been answering that question for 10 years and it does feel like people aren't listening to me you're trying to give them the hint yeah no, no it's not happening yeah exactly <laughs> here's a sticker people just people they just want they'll keep asking until they get the answer they want which is a shame because i can never give you the answer you want uh and it's like having to tell someone every day that santa claus doesn't exist what yeah <laughs> <laughs> you are sharp this is Whoa. some sharp stuff you came at me there you, Whoa! It, it's a question like that that you're always going to disappoint people if anyone asks me that question, what that means is I'm going to make you unhappy in a minute. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, don't ask me that question because you won't like the answer. Yeah. And I've, and it, I get a bit cross when people, I just feel like people aren't listening. Like when people say that Ruben broke up out of the blue, it's like, were you, were you not listening? Yeah. There was a song on that last album called Suffocation of the Fucking Soul. Yeah. What did you think that was about? Have you heard Return of the Jedi or even Freddy Krueger? You know, it could not have been clearer how difficult it was. We, were, we got a reputation for being the band that moaned on and on and on about how difficult being in a band was. And then when we split up, everyone was like, oh, I, feel, I thought you liked it. Like, no, mate. Listen to the actual fucking records. When you buy the album, inside, if you read those yeah. lyrics that are printed... They say, we're going to split up yes. in a minute. This is our new song, we're going to split up next year. So, <laughs> And it's the same when people ask me if they're going to reform. I have, Unless you've never met me or never read any interview with me or listened to any of my material, I would forgive that question. But otherwise, just pay attention. Like, it's fucking clear that I don't want to. And... Uh, it's incredibly unlikely and uh, basically no. There you go. Yeah. So what was it like then looking back? At, you've got fond memories, obviously. You said you still listen to the album now. It must be nice to be involved in something that I don't think will ever happen again. That's a massive statement. But we had this influx of amazing British bands. We had Vex Red. We had 100 Reasons, Hellers for Heroes. 
Um, we had Ruben. We had all the Million Dead. This massive influx of bands. Yeah. I remember watching Top of the Pops yeah. and Collins on there singing Silver by Hundred Reasons, and I was like, "Yeah, this is mental." Rival Scores were doing well. All these great bands. It was a good time, and it was awesome. And I don't think we'll ever get that again, where we have so many great bands come through in one go. I don't. I think it's. I don't know. I think we were I... difficult now. Why? Just because the record industry is. It's it's tour, 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 and people have to still work, and it's not the dream of, I can mm. just solely be a rock star in a band. Everyone... But it wasn't then either, but we were all struggling then. We came in at the at the very end of when labels had any money, so it was already falling apart at that point. You know, we were all, everyone had um, part-time jobs, apart from, you know, 100 Reasons then. Biffy Clyro. <laughs> well, even they, you know, they when we were playing with them, Biffy still had, that's not quite true, they were, they were a few steps on from us. But for the first couple of albums, I'm, I'm pretty sure they yeah. still had their jobs and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, um, at the at the time, I, I didn't think... I wondered when's the next like cropper band's going to come up and there isn't much of a scene. And it's only now, so many years later, that I can go, oh, shit, there was tons of really good bands. <laughs> but there, there are bands now. There's tons of really good bands that employed to serve Black Peaks, Black Peaks Arcane awesome. Roots. Yeah. You know, I'm saying this because they're all my mates, you know. And you've appeared on some of their albums. No, yeah. they're all my buddies, but they're, they're my buddies because we're in, I feel like now I know where to look. I sort of feel like I'm in a, a little scene again. I'm quite happy about it because, you know, you, you don't have to get two cracks of the whip. That scene that you're talking about in the, the noughties is very distinct and yeah, we can pick all those names. I think people will look back at what's happening now and, and read off to you the names that I've just said, you know, and others that I've missed out, Palm Reader, you know, all those great bands and go, look, what a fucking great scene. Imagine going to a gig back in the day. Imagine going to Lem Mania. That's what I tried to do yeah. with Lem Mania, even though there's some weird choices there. A lot of it was bands were in that scene, you know, Rolla Tomasi, all, all, all these people. Uh, it's great. Perhaps I need to get in my time machine, go forward this time. You do need 10 to go years, forward and go oh, and look back and go, great. "Whoa, Black yeah. Peaks!" There's what lots was of I stuff thinking? happening. Yeah, perhaps I'm like Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, and I'm stuck going back in 2002. Those with hundred the, reasons bands, with the gems, yeah, yeah. And the little. Um, I need to get with the thing. cool kids. You do need to, yeah. <laughs> so you went away. Ruben broke up, and everyone was crying, and everyone was upset, yeah. and you know it was it was a tough time. And you were like a little ninja. You went away. No one's heard from you. You didn't do any, like, press doing the whole, you know, we broke up because of this or statements or any of this nah. stuff. You just said hiatus and the website said maybe we'll be back, blah, blah, blah. You know, quite did straightforward. It? it said something, it left you open a little bit. Oh, it wasn't okay, like final nail in the coffin. Oh, okay. The people on the forums were saying, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. But then you just came out of nowhere with your solo album. Yeah. Literally, it was like, not many people do that anymore. It's like when a Cloverfield film comes out now. It's like, yeah. what? how the hell did everyone hide this? Yeah. And it wasn't just a an EP, it was a double album, it was you putting everything yeah. for the world again, and overnight it just came from nowhere. Wow. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I just thought, I didn't want to make a big fuss, because I thought there would probably be a weight of expectation against anything else that I might do. Because even though I wasn't producing anything... Things were still coming my way in that four-year gap or whatever it was. I was still in touch with my agent, Ross, who's still my agent, Ruben's agent, still my agent, various chums in the music industry. So there was still a lot of chat and people would ask what I was up to and bloody blah, blah and we'd still get offers for 
Did Ruben want to reform it? Download. Come and play. <laughs> Jimmy's yeah, back. He's on work yeah. experience. Uh, all that stuff. So I, I sort of got the feeling. And when I'd meet people out and about in the streets, they'd say, you know, when are you doing something and whatever, which is nice, nice. And so I, I was aware that there was a, people were listening out and would listen if I did anything. And so what I wanted to make sure didn't happen, because again, some of this started to happen with Ruben as well, which made it very difficult, is that people would have their own ideas about why we were doing stuff and what they wanted. It's made it tough. The, the longer you go on, the more people get attached to an idea and they have their own concept of what it should be. And it's very often quite similar to the, how they first encountered you, you know. So we would even get emails. After Nothing We Trust came out, someone writes an email and said, why don't you make another album that sounds like Race Cars, Race Car Backwards? And we're like, right, because we've sort of done that. Plus this does, doesn't it? And all that stuff. And so if I'd have said, hey, everybody, I'm going to put out an out. I'm doing some stuff, even before I had an album written, back in the studio, uh, or even just like next month I'm going to put out an album, or, or in a couple of months, people from that point would have started thinking to themselves, or oh, what's it going to be like? And they would have drawn their own conclusions, and they would in their mind have constructed their own version of what my new album would sound like. Would it be exactly like Ruben? Would it be completely different? And whatever I did from that point, I've been a fucking hiding into nothing. I was bound to disappoint half the people, you know, and they go, oh, this isn't what I wanted. Much better to go, here it is, fucking deal with it. And everyone's like, you know, it went went really well. I think it blew a few people's minds. To come out with Fizzy Blood and Pretty Please at the same time, I wanted to create the strongest reaction and a big contrast. And everyone was just really cool about it and, you know, accepted it with an open mind. And I think... I don't want to do people a disservice, but I think if I'd have like warned it, like put a little sign up on the website, coming soon or whatever, people would have had time to bubble away and then they'd have this figment of their imagination which whatever I did just couldn't possibly match and that would have led to a disparity and disappointment. I want Ruben Mark too. I want it to be Maybe. like... Tonight yeah. my wife is your wife. If it's not like that, I'm not buying it. Exactly. And all this shit. Maybe, maybe. Or at least, you know, they would have been disappointed, yeah. Whereas if you've got no expectations... You can't be disappointed. Was it nice actually not having to do studio diaries and going out there and posting updates and doing this and not starting to do interviews, just literally you and is it Sean again, wasn't it? Yeah, Sean. You just sat there and just did the album how you wanted with no pressure from a label saying, oh, this one doesn't sound poppy enough. Because that first half of that record is fucking heavy. Thanks. You screamed your lungs out. Mm, It gets pretty hoarse. Uh, I I know, again, I mean, making records is always hard for me and I've got to say, making Nothing We Trust was hard. Because we did it over, you know, three or four years, long, long time. And we only did it when Sean had a free gap of time and he was away a lot. And so I would, he'd be busy with lots of projects and I'd be badgering him. When when can I come in and do a bit of guitars or when are we going to get that mix? So it took a long time and I was sort of in limbo. You know, by the time I'd started writing and recording it, I felt ready to sort of get back out there. And it took another two years after I'd reached that point when it finally came out so I was very I got quite frustrated because you know uh, it took a long time quite apart from the fact that it was such a huge album so it was difficult to make um, it was nice not to have any pressures from outside sure I mean I quite like doing interviews and whatnot. Um so it wasn't that I was relieved not to have to do it it was but, a nice kept secret it really was for us fans and for the listeners out yeah, there that was, was the most important it thing it was awesome cool was I'm part glad of, was part of you thinking 
do it as two releases. So you've got this one big metal, real thrashy, heavy. Yeah. And then you've got this separate CD. Or is it always going to be like, a bit like um, Melancholy and Infinity of Sadness? Is it always a two-parter? I did. There was, there was a few ways I thought about doing it. I did think about, yeah, releasing two albums on the same day. Um, the soft one and the heavy one. And that would have been quite cool as well. Um, but if I'd have done that, people would have been less likely to listen to them as a piece. And I, and their strength, I think, is in their contrast. On their own, uh, the two discs, each disc, the heavy one and the soft one, they're not... Um, I don't think they're particularly remarkable. I, I like. I think they've got really good songs. I'm proud of them. And the the, the heaviness level of this heavy one, I think it's, it's pretty impressive. For me, there's heavier bands. But they don't really do anything special on their own. They're not... If you put on either one, you'd be like, yep, okay. It's only when you realise, oh shit, this is the same fucking album, that it becomes an interesting concept. And so that really was essential yeah i considered splitting them up but i realized that actually they're much more exciting when it's like no this is the same fucking thing ice cream with fucking gravy on deal with it you know in fact ice cream with gravy that sounds pretty good idea we stop the interview and get absolutely absolutely i i like the idea that you would you would put on which is the first one the heavy one's first in it so you get right to the end of muscle and you'd be like oh and you put the second disc and it's then bling 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 and you think what the fuck is going on I wanted I wanted it to fuck with people. I did consider putting it out all jumbled up, like the heavy ones. That'd be too much. <laughs> That'd be too much. Yeah. But um, no, I think the the um, chief uh, value of that album is that they coincide and they share themes, you know. And the songs are about the same things: family and depression and all this kind of stuff. They're, they're all woven together. So they share the same su- subject matter, even if the music is wildly different. And of course, you know, that we had those two tracks that came together to make the same song, yeah. make a new song. They, you know, I did that again to say, look, this is the same, al- same album. I have this horrible feeling as well that someone might just be browsing in HMV. Oh, I like the look of this album. Goes yeah. home, listens to it. Oh, it's really mellow. I'll have to go and check him out. And then you come on stage and start with something like The Clock. And, and people will just be like, that's this what isn't I the band I went to see. That's what I loved. And I did, yeah, I did that album cover on purpose because people think, oh, a lovely banjo record. Yes. And then you put on, you know, Six Fingered Hand. Yeah. And I used to like the way we, you know, with the heavy mellow band, we'd come on stage. And still, people look at me if they'd see me in the street and we got talking. I did... I went to a shop the other day when I did an in-store and the fellow was like, oh, what do you do? People always ask me what I do. They think I'm a magician or something. And I said, I'm a heavy metal musician. (laughs) And you never think it. And I always like it when people's outward appearances belie what they actually are. And so to see a fellow like me in a three-piece suit with a moustache and a hat and whatnot, you'd never get... And if you saw him like belting out like one of my eyes as a clock, you'd just be like, the fuck? (laughs) It would really... uh, I hope it blows your mind a bit. And I think... Some people do, if they haven't seen me before, they go, the hell is going on here? Four guys in three-piece suits playing six-fingered hands. It's pretty pretty immense. I enjoyed it. So was it awesome when you actually brought out the album and people were coming to your shows? It wasn't just like coming to your show going, can you play some Ruben? People were loving the fact that you were playing these new songs and you were 
bringing a whole collection. You're not just playing the heavy side, and then if you come another night, you get the acoustic mm. side. You get a bit of both. You get a bit of the Ruben songs as well for the hardcore fans. But sure. you were doing what you wanted, and you looked like you were having the time of your life on stage. You know, you were looking like you were loving it. Really? Well, I mean, <laughs> well, now there's no that, there's no Santa Claus. No, there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> when we did Muscle Memory, I was it was still quite difficult for me because uh, I was still carrying a lot of weight from. Um, my previous live experiences, live had got very difficult for me and Ruben as well. All, all these things contributed. And so picking that back up, I was incredibly nervous and my voice found it very hard to sing all those uh, heavy songs. Uh, but it was great. The reaction was great. And I liked the, the way I, people didn't expect me to play any Ruben songs. They People bought tickets to those shows just to hear the new stuff, which is incredibly encouraging and generous and open-minded of them. But of course I was going to play all the old songs, you know, not just for the the audience, but for me as well. I like them. And then, you know, they're my songs. But it was great that people were willing to come and go, yep, whatever you got, let's give it a go. I thought that was super cool. And uh, to say I'm grateful sounds incorrect because they're not doing it for my benefit. You can't really be grateful for things that aren't done for your benefit. I think what I mean to say is that I'm proud and admiring of music listeners and my listenership that they were ready to uh, accept whatever I had to give them I think that's cool so let's talk about the most fresh album at the moment Devolver yeah amazing album and I'm not just saying it because I'm sat here now Watch fucking out. awesome dude oh thanks it's, you must be proud of it it's sounding yeah, very very just... sweet oh yeah yes oh well that's all down to space he's at the he's at the controls there Making me sound good. Did you have fun? I mean, you went away again. You know, it wasn't as long, but yeah. you went away and then suddenly came back with, you know, this this album that's a mix. It's it got you can tell it's got elements of the guy that wrote Ruben songs. Yeah, but it's also a breakaway of I'm now doing my thing, and it, yeah. it's 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 nothing like your last album no. at all. It's it's a lot more radio friendly in parts. Yeah, I suppose. But it's it's different again. You've took it to another level. Well, I'm relieved to hear you say that. I, I wasn't sure how different it was going to be. To me, it's just continuing what I was doing with those Ruben records. I always talk about Muscle Memory as a little bit of a sidestep. That was a, that was a project, you know, let's see how heavy we can get and let's see how jazz we can get. And so to, to go back to songs with just big guitars and big melodies, that's sort of what I've always done. I think if there is any progression there, it was partly down down to space and his um, synth and dance elements, which I've always liked. You know, again, people say, "Oh, this record sounds a lot like Nine Inch Nails," and I'm like, "Yeah." But then, so you know, I've always been a fan of like, "Have you been listening to a lot of Nine Inch Nails recently?" Let's do a lot of Nine Inch Nails since '94, mate. Yeah. You know, and it's always been a thread in all my records. But the this one, it just pulls it out more, and maybe those songs, you know. Um, you know, a couple of these songs I've had for quite a while. I don't know anything was supposed to be on that third Ruben record, and I know that's not one of the particularly Nine Inch Nailsy ones. Although it is a little bit. Um, what's my point here? In the, I think it's that any sonic progression you can hear is to do with the the which songs were chosen, and they were chosen by Space and by my management, and then we could see areas where Space could suffuse that with his particular specialities. Which are which is danceable elements. He's worked with a lot of big dance acts, um, and so yeah, I'm glad it is a sonic progression. But I wrote it very similarly to how I'd written 
the Ruben albums. I think some of the songs are maybe a, a bit more linear, as in they sort of build rather than verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. I know a couple of them sort of repeat a thing and then they get strong and they get strong and then there's a big fucking blowout at the end. I quite like that. Maybe I hadn't done that before, so maybe that's a new feature. But I sort of approached it in the same way that I used to approach those Ruben records, writing-wise. And how is that? Do you sit there with a pen and do the lyrics first, or do you pick up a guitar and write a melody, or are you sitting on a keyboard? How do you actually go about constructing a song? It's all. It starts with the guitar. It always starts with the riff, really, yeah. and then um, that's what I'm big on, the riff. And then it, I just mumble something over the top, anything, and... Then I think of lyrics. Lyrics are the last bit that I do. Some of the time. Most of the time. Every now and then a strong lyric will come through. I've got something that I particularly want to say and it, it comes out. A lot of the time the sort of gibberish that I sing over the top of the uh, of my first guitar idea just to have something to say will end up being the hook that I use for it. Like in, for instance, I don't know anything. You know, I don't know anything. That's just uh, six notes that fit that pattern. And then when I thought about it, I thought, oh, shit, well, do I know much? And then I thought, well, let's write a song about that, about preconceptions and about how you think you're pretty clever and switched on, but actually you don't know fucking anything. And so sometimes the lyrics can come out of that. They come out of the gibberish, maybe a little snatch of just skit, scat, scatting if you do. <laughs> yeah. You think, oh, is that a good point? And maybe someone who is a little bit more philosophical than me might say, oh, that's your subconscious talking to your... And I'm not sure how much I believe in that. Although... On Waterloo Teeth, which was the second single we did, which is on the record, I've said before that actually that the lyrics on that have stayed the entirety of the gibberish that I wrote for the demo. Uh, very often when I'm doing a demo, I just write some gibberish just to have anything to sing. And I didn't change a single word of that when it came to the record, because when I look back at the gibberish, I saw that it painted an alarmingly realistic picture of uh, my state of mind. All this horrible imagery about shacks full of stuff and clanking machinery and wading in slime Whew, I was stressed out I didn't realise it but I was so that's what tumbled out so I think there is a case to be made for that being the subconscious talking it's like when I heard the song Mississippi I was thinking did he write that riff and then just think what word would go with that riff or did he love the word Mississippi so he wrote a song to justify using that word it was just such a now I listen to the M I yeah. double S I. I just it's. I don't know how that would come about. No, it was, it was a little song that my dad used to sing. He, M I double S I double S I P P I. When he wasn't really paying attention, it would just go off into it. And then uh, when he died, it got stuck in my brain, which is why it's on um, Muscle Memory at the end of Shotgun House. Yeah, and it just wouldn't go away. I just kept um, f- fizzing around in my brain, and I th- put it. I just went, uh, do, 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 do. Fucking hell, that's heavy. You know, I wonder how that would sound with big drums on it. And then we played it and then it became the, the song in itself. Uh, so, yeah, that was the, the little tune came first. Are you happy with the album? Do you listen back now? I can see it on your record collection here. Do you get it out and listen and think, you know, you're not sitting there going, oh, I should have done a harmony there. It needed a trumpet there. Were you happy with it? I think it, Currently, I think I'm the happiest, actually, with Devolver. Good. Mm, maybe even happier than in Nothing We Trust. Uh, yeah, Devolver's got the least things that I would change, I'd say. Um, but that, I might feel different in a few years' time. Who, who can say? I'm, it's pretty, it's sewn up pretty tight, that record. You know, there's not a lot of fat on it, although there are 
things that we put in just to give it some texture you know things like comfort animal it's not really a song it's more about um giving it an atmosphere at that midpoint uh so but i think it's everything it needs to be Mm, i'm pretty chuffed with it i think it makes a very concise package in the same way that um in nothing we trust does my other my other favorite i think it has a beginning a middle and an end it's like 11 tracks it's all you need to know it paints quite a clear picture whereas the other ones the first two ruben ones they're a bit all over the place like i said the second one could have been better with a bit of pruning so the first one and then muscle memory is this crazy fucking experiment that doesn't make any sense but enough we trust and, and now devolver i think they're quite compact and quite concise and through that they have a strength and a clarity i th- i think yeah i'm happy with it and it wasn't that long ago you were touring this album obviously it came out and you were going around the uk playing some shows a lot of the you know full most nights you yeah, it was the, very good. Are you feeling now like you did when Ruben started? Have you got that love again there? You want to go out there and you want to play music. You're not kind of, oh, for fuck's sake, another gig tonight. You're kind of enjoying mm. it. You've got that taste again. I do, actually. I do. And it wasn't there at all when we were doing Muscle Memory, when we were touring with the Heavy Mellow Band. Uh, that is an important difference into how I am now compared to how I was from, basically, from the the last couple of years of Ruben through muscle memory to now, you know, I didn't like playing live at all. And now, yeah, I'm mad for it. I uh, love it. I had a great time on the tour. It, and it's mostly because uh, I've slimmed down the live outfit to just the two, just to me and Daniel, because there's so much less worry. There's so much less hassle. You know, by the time we did, I did a tour with the heavy metal band, it was seven pieces. We had, we had the four, drums, bass, guitar, and me. And then we had a three-part brass section as well. And we would have guest singers and whatnot, you know. And even though that was an, an impressive musical undertaking, and I'm glad we did it, it was so stressful. And when I thought, you know, when we had to, when we had to, when we started touring um, the new material last year of, of Devolver, again, that, that stress mountain approached me, went, time to call everyone up and rehearse everyone with a whole album's worth of material. I thought, oh, God. I really can't do it. You know, I'm not a young man anymore. And then when I suddenly thought, well, look, we'd had such a good time tracking the record with just me and Daniel. And it sounded so great just in the room with just the guitar and me. I started to wonder, look, is there a viable way we can take, because it had such energy. Is there a way we can take this live? Do we need the other people? Can we do it with just me and Daniel? And I'm, I'm glad that we found a way. And uh, that really has been a, a huge part of why... I am a lot keener than I was to play live because back in the days of the band, the early days of the band, there's only three of us and we didn't need a sound engineer. We didn't need a tour manager. We would literally just go to gig in a transit with the gear in the back of the van. You could just do a gig like that. If someone said, you want to do a gig in an hour? We'd be like, yep, see you there. And we just do it. Whereas as time goes on, things get more and more complex and takes more and more planning and it's people more have uphill. wives and kids. And, exactly. You know, I mean, getting yeah, seven exactly. people in a room That's on true. one night is a in, challenge. You're right, you're right, you're exactly right. There's so much to do. And the more of that you can strip away, the easier it becomes. So I feel very similar now to what I did back then, where someone could say, do you want to do a gig next week or even tomorrow? And I don't have to think that hard about it. I only have to make one call. Yeah. Daniel, are you free? Yes, let's do it. Yeah. You know, and it's great and it's so flexible and 
you know, because it's only me and the drums, I can just leave him playing. You know, I can just tell him, look, keep keep going, and I'll have a little jam out or whatever. We can decide. Let's do that one instead. We don't have to check with two or three other people. That's been a big part of it for me. Playing live as a two-piece has really um, reinvigorated my live career. And the last tour we went on was just uh, Dynamite, yeah. So coming up in the summer, you've got, which we've mentioned already, but Download Festival. Yeah. Little Jimmy's pulled his socks off Absolutely, he has, hasn't he? Yeah. Got me a good slot, actually, up there with the hives. Yeah, good stage, that one. Do you ever worry that there's this band kind of taped up in a van somewhere and tied up that should have been playing, and he's Maybe. gone in, deleted their name, put on Ruben or Jamie, yeah. and kind of, you know, they just, no one's ever kind of twigged and gone, hang on, that's not... Could be, but then I've mean? been that band taped up in the back yeah. of the van somewhere, so it works both ways. It works all right, yeah. all right. So if people want to see you, they can come and see you at Download? They definitely should, and lots of other great bands, yeah. You can tell people you're supporting Guns N' Roses if people ask. That's quite no, a nice one. No, I won't tell them that. I won't mention it. They'll be like, who's playing down under that? I don't know, mate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And have you got any more plans to go out there and play Devolver again, or do you like to just release an album, now go and tour it as a two-piece, and then, right, let's look at the next stage, or are you up for going out there again and giving people the chance to see these songs again? No, I'd love to go out again. I don't think I'd do the... Uh the Devolver tour again. That tour we just did was very much centred on, you know, this is my new album. It was mostly, you know, it was maybe 50 or 60% with stuff off the new record, which is good. And we did the two drum kits, which I was quite, you know, bold for me. And I'm glad to say it worked. But that was because the the, the album is so rhythmic. Um, I'd love to do uh, more tours, uh, but um, I just wouldn't want people to get sick of me, you know. Uh, I don't know how many times you could see the same act in the same year and still be excited about it. But we're doing festivals all throughout the summer, so that's the summer taken care of. And then I think we've uh, we're looking at maybe going out and supporting another act in the in the second half of the year, which would be good. So I'm not sure if there'll be time for my own tour. I'd like to, I like supporting acts. We went and supported um, Arcane Roots for a week in Europe, which is so much fun. And I haven't been a support act again since Ruben. Which is uh, bands like Bloody Billy Talent back in the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, I love being a support act, and I yeah. love. Going around with a band and, and being the, I like being the warm up and getting people to a, a boiling point. And I like surprising people that haven't seen you before. There's a certain element of shooting fish in a barrel when you do your own show because you know that people will like certain things. Not that it's easy to win them over, but they, they're already on your side, aren't they? Whereas if you go to a, not so much a cold audience, but an audience that haven't heard you, yeah, maybe, yeah. or not a lot of them haven't, that's very exciting to see. Or what will they like? You know, maybe you go down like a, a lead balloon, but. Um, Hopefully not, and that's not usually the case. But I'd I'd really like to go out on a support tour, and then yeah, do another headline tour, and then look and then look at the next record, maybe into next year. So we've still got quite a lot of stuff on the agenda for this year before we start thinking about that. See, people now listening are going to get, oh my god, he's just announced he's going to do another. Album oh no, and now they're going to start <laughs> oh, thinking about it. Better be Ruben. What is it going to be like? Yes. Oh no, stuck in my throat. And better be on there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And where are you at now with writing? Are you, do you put it to bed? Are you kind of like, Devolver's done, I'm not going to do anything now until it's the stage of a new album? Or are you going to bed some nights and thinking, I can't sleep, I'm going to pick up a guitar and write? Yeah, that's always how it happens. That second one, really, it just, um, I, I never go into a concentrated period of writing or whatever. I just write. When it feels right. Huh? Yes. <laughs> when, just when it comes to me, just when it comes to me and I get an idea, you know, I... I wrote a, a new song just before the last tour and was so excited about it. I thought, let's play this on the tour, even though that's a bizarre thing to do. 
um, just because it had come to me and I was like great new song and I wanted to show it to people and that sort of happens you know every now and then I get a little idea and I follow it through and I just I sort of put it in the vault I put it in the bag of songs and I think well look that's done I think about that later and then when it comes time to making a record I look at the bag of songs and I go right what am I exciting about what fits together well and that's how we did devolver i had a big bag of songs and i took them all to the producer and the management and they both picked broadly the same 10 or 12 songs and uh, and it was a surprise to me some songs that i wouldn't have thought would go well together or even appear on an album like body popping i thought body popping was just a stupid little demo i'd done at four in the morning for my own amusement they were like that's the single yeah. Like, you're crazy <laughs> we put it on and it worked and so that is you know if if I do another record or when I do another record it will probably be along the same lines I'll have a look in the song bag and go hmm what makes a good set and any new ones that I have by then will probably get a shoe in you know or and I, or I might think this is good but I need something a little bit brighter there for the second act, let's say, of the record, so my thoughts might turn to something a little bit bright, and I might end up writing something for that gap. Uh, but that's sort of how I do it. I'm sort of writing all the time and storing away, and then when it comes time to put something out, I have a look at what will go best together. In that little bag of, like, pick-a-mix, which, let's say, yeah. are there any ones that kind of have an expiry date? Do you give something a limit, or is that stuff in there that's been around since your teenage years? No, some of them do have an expiry date. Right. I mean... Um, like I say, I keep talking about I Don't Know Anything. That's at least 10 years old. Wow. And it's ended up on this record. That's quite nicer that it's not, you know, you're going in there and you might see the light one day. Oh, exactly, There's hope, yeah. there's hope for everything in that no, bag. There was a track on Muscle Memory, the song Muscle. That had been around since before Pilot, before Ruben's first EP. It just didn't fit anywhere. Cool. And so I was like, oh, maybe that riff will work. So, yeah, they do get shoved to the back. The newer songs do get precedence, and I go, oh, I want to put that on the record. And the older ones get a bit, yeah. come back, like Kate Winslet at the end of Titanic blowing on a whistle. <laughs> but um, I can see them glinting in the back and go, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, you know. And and that way they get sort of freshened and revivified. You know, they, it, quite often if I like with that riff off muscle... I only sort of had the riff and then it went in a weird direction. So I sort of chopped the dead bits off and shoved it into a new bit. And, you know, it all goes into a. It's like um, pottage. You know, the, the medieval Europeans used to eat this food <laughs> called pottage. You know about pottage? Bit of everything. Bit of everything. They just have a pot that was always above the fire. And whatever you add, buttons, <laughs> bit of rabbit, you know, pocket lint. Put it in the pot. Yeah. Stir it away. Some of that shit's been there a long time. But you just put it on the plate and that's whatever you've got. Is that how I make my albums? Yeah, I think that's probably... It's like pottage. There yeah. you go. Oh, Audio pottage. Oh, God. Yeah. And do you think that it might get to the day when you think we'll do like a we should have gone to university again and just release all of them on a two-disc set so they're out there? Do you ever think that there, there's some of them are just only made for a compilation or a B-side or you're just thinking... Yeah, no, they, that's a good point. I do sort of think that somewhere I'd quite like to do a record... At some point, I might have a bit of a clear out and just say, look, these are like 10 or 12 songs that just don't fit anywhere. This is not an album. It's just 10 songs and they're weird and they wouldn't fit on anything else. I think that'd be quite a fun album. Those are always my favourite albums anyway. I always love the B-side collections that don't have any 
as much as I've put an emphasis on having a, a, a strong line through it, like those two records of mine that I think have managed to do it, I really like the ones where there's no through line at all. I love Incesticide by Nirvana. It's my favourite yeah. Nirvana album. I love um, Beatles Pastmasters 1 and 2. And to a certain extent, um, what's the record they did of Sgt. Pepper's Magical Mystery Tour? Yes. Is actually, although they were sort of created at the same period, it's an EP and a few singles. So it's a bit jumbledy higgledy piggledy. I quite like that. It's like a box of chocolates. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so at some point, yeah, I might have a bit of a clear out and go, look, here's just the ones I've been hanging out for ages. They're like 20 years old. They don't make any sense. Here they are. I think that'd be a fun record to make. Like the car boot sale album. Absolutely. That's what I'm going to call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I have a bit of rights on that? No. <laughs> no. Some pick a mix? Yeah. From Wilco's? Yes. Oh, that's a good trade, that's I think. Good. They've got a good selection. Amazing. So if anyone's tuned in and they're only wanting to hear about your other passion because they know that you're a good artist and you love comics, you love Doctor Who, you have a Dalek, yeah, you know, how's all that? Do you still find time? Because whenever I grow up, and well, I don't grow up, I grow older, the cool stuff seems to not get as much time as I wanted. You know, the cool toys, the cool mm. stuff I used to watch. Yeah. Do you still get time to do these animations and these great pictures? I mean, you did the artwork for... We should have gone to university and stuff, and it's it's very you. You know, you can tell it's your work. Right. Are you still getting time to dedicate to that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the one of the joys is that or it's a difficult line to tread. People say, if you find a job you love, you never have to work again. But on the other side of that is, if you make your hobby your job, you'll end up hating your hobby. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So watch out, because... You know, my two hobbies when I was a kid at school, when they were saying do science and maths, were writing songs and drawing cartoons. And that's ended up being my job, which is lucky, because they said stop doing them. And I was like, nah. Okay, <laughs> You'll never on. make this as a career. But but as a consequence, yeah, they, you do end up in a funny half place where they are, you know, they were my hobbies and they're now my jobs. And so... They do have, whereas they used to be pure free expression, they're now very often a means to an end, you know, to a certain extent. Certainly, I haven't drawn a cartoon for myself for years because whenever I draw a cartoon, it's it's for a job, it's for a, a commission or whatever, magazine editorial or what have you. So, I mean, the cool stuff I have, like Doctor Who, I've managed in a very small way to make that part of my career I do a lot of work for Doctor Who magazine and uh, so all the cool stuff that I buy all my action figures I need them for reference yes you know I need this I do yes. I do I've got all those action figures I regularly get them out if I'm on a commission and I need to see the back of the doctor's jacket or something I get the toys out and I draw from them you know so in that way I've been lucky and comics and music they're all they're part of what I do for my job so um they get a lot of time. Well, they get all my time, really. Why didn't I think of that when I'm buying stuff and the wife's having a go at me saying, why have you wasted all this money on these toys? I'm like, I need it for reference. You do, you do. No, it's true. Damn, it that's the like best a... get-out-of-prison card ever. It sounds like a joke, but it's true. Even that big old Dalek I bought, I can't tell you how many times I've put him in various positions and drawn him properly. You know, he he's valuable to me <laughs> in my job, in my job. Yeah. Cool. And the last question I want to finish with today is there's, when I do interviews, I always speak to people that have got good advice. Oh, <laughs> So anyone that's listening that's now thinking of picking up a guitar, 
entering a competition to win a Yamaha or, yeah. you know, a part of a 10-gill group that might get 100 quid. Yeah. What advice do you give for people now wanting to make it into the music industry? It's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, I think what I would say is do as, as much of it yourself as you can. Don't wait for outside agencies to get involved. Just do it. If you're going to make an album, don't wait for someone to go, here's a million pounds, make an album, make it. Save up, pull a couple of favours, make a good album, you know, book your own shows until people catch up with you and go, hey, I'll do that for you. Do you want me to be your agent? Do you want me to be your label? Just just be running at the time. If I had to uh, solidify into a visual metaphor, which I don't, but I will, it's sort of, don't wait at a street corner for people to come up to you and go, how about this? Be walking along the street and they will have to sort of trot a little bit to catch up with you to go, oh, by the way, you're already moving. So um, do all your own stuff until people catch up with you to, to come on board to your team, the people you need, the agents, the labels. You do need these people, but you can do a lot of it yourself and uh, just keep moving. Don't don't wait. It's basically, if I had to dispense with the clumsy metaphor, which I probably, maybe you should edit that out. Don't wait. Or stand on street corners. Or stand on street corners. <laughs> Both are not good. You don't do that either, no. It's good though as well, because at the moment it's a good time to do it. It's affordable to record your own album at home on your computer. It's not yeah. like you need this big studio. You can sit there now and learn how to use Pro Tools or Cubase by just YouTube videos. There's no excuse. Yeah. If you want to make a music video, you can do it on an iPhone. Yeah. There's no better time and there's no excuse that if you want to do it, go for it. Yeah. And it, I mean, the internet has made it easier to be seen everyone's got access so to a certain point yeah you can be your own label and produce and whatever and it's after you get that initial platform that you then need help standing out in the sea of all these other people and that's when people like agents and labels will, will help you out but if you're already up and running then you have an advantage yeah Amazing. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Jamie. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. You joined me. You came to my house. I know. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I like it when people go, do you want to come to my house? I'm like, well, that so means you I. haven't got to leave the house, which is great. Yeah. But I'm also, you're not going to be any more relaxed than in your own house. This is true. This is true. So thank you. You're welcome. It meant a lot. Ah. And let's come back on in a few years when you've done another album. Oh, bloody hell. All right. <laughs> no yeah. pressure. Deal. That's Fantastic. Deal. Thank you. So there's my interview with me and Jamie Lemon, and I hope you all really enjoyed it. A whole 90 minutes, and honestly, I could have sat there and talked for another couple of hours. Easily my favourite guest to date. Personally, I can't believe it's happened. I'm so, so proud of this interview because it's something that I never really thought would happen, but now it has. I'm so, so grateful it's turned out so well, and I hope you've all enjoyed it. When I was at Jamie's and we were packing stuff down and finishing the interview, we were kind of just talking about films and TV and I was telling him all about Skip to the End and stuff and he was really kind of opening up and telling me all about his film tastes and his TV and he's a huge, huge fan of Doctor Who. He was showing me his whole collection and he's got this kind of room in his house that's got all this treasure in and I'm talking like old nostalgic retro um, figures and toys and there's Thundercats figures and wrestling figures and he really had one of the best collections I've ever seen especially if you're a fan of Doctor Who he had a Dalek he had some absolute awesome stuff and we're talking about all these films and TV and I really saw him kind of light up and as much as I enjoy talking to him for an hour and a half purely about music and Ruben and his own stuff 
I really saw a different side where he really lit up and was really interested in this stuff. And I thought, do you know what? We should follow this up because he has so much to say and so much to show. I think we should do this as a video kind of interview next time and give everyone out there this chance to see this incredible collection that he's got because so many collectors and so many fans of some of these figures that he has would absolutely love this so Jamie's been good enough to say that I'm allowed to go back down there and we'll do this in the next few months and then put it out there on maybe YouTube for you all to check out and we can kind of talk all about his collection in more detail and I think most of you will find this absolutely fascinating. I want to finish today by saying a big thank you to Jamie for being so accommodating and inviting me to his own home. You hear the audio quality and how much of an improvement it is over a telephone or Skype interview, so thanks Jamie very much. If you haven't got the album, please, please go and invest. It really is my album of last year and I think it's worth every single penny, so stop right now and go and buy it. Feel free to tweet Jamie the feedback and go on to markandme.com and let me know if you've enjoyed the episode. On there there's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my emails... I really would love to hear what you thought of this interview and hopefully you enjoyed it as much as me. I will be back in the next couple of weeks with another interview and as always if you really enjoyed this interview and want to help I do have a Patreon page set up and that's on markandme.com. Even if you just throw me a dollar a month it all helps and it's things like getting to go down to Jamie's and pay for the petrol and do all these interviews that is the reason I do this Patreon and you can see how I invest your money so I'm so grateful for you all that have kind of pledged so far if anyone else wants to get involved it's very much appreciated and allows me to do more and more interviews which is great for you guys. I will be back in a couple of weeks so until then stay safe and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you. This is a, this is a, a song about a show on TV a detective show if you will all about cops and robbers, shooting down rules, high-speed cottages.